Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. I was not going to take anything that we had not agreed to. I hope you know it's all now. That's fine. I'll use everything I have to make sure that you never see those kids again. Jonathan Paul Estes was born January 29, 1983, and goes by John. At the age of 35, he lived in Bogachito, Mississippi, and worked as a construction worker, which required him to often travel for work. He was described as a hard worker with a great work ethic that adored his two children. It is said that they were his life and driving force for working so hard. He was married to their mother, Cindy Estes, but the marriage had been troubled and they had separated multiple times over the years and allegedly had mutual affairs on both sides. In May 2018, John accompanied his daughter to Washington, D.C. with their church, and when he returned, he was scheduled for a two-week work trip to Texas. Right before he was scheduled to leave, Cindy asked for a divorce. He told a friend that he was surprised because the relationship had improved and it had been going much better. After returning from work in Texas two weeks later, the couple separated and he rented a house of his own. On May 10, 2018, when he went to the home the couple had shared to pick up his belongings, he felt the need to record the interaction while waiting on law enforcement to assist and be present during the act of retrieving his items. This is a portion of the video, and the entire video can be found on YouTube, and I will link the description down below. Well, I wasn't going to bring it to this. I wanted civil. I was just going to take my stuff, and I was going to leave. No, you were going to take my stuff. No, I'm not taking your stuff. It's our stuff. What you were taking. We were, what? Everything. No, I was not. No, I, no, I was not. I was going to take, I have not told Bryce what I was taking. I know all about what you've been up to. That's good. Your son does too. That's why he called you. What he called you this morning? He found that and sent it to me so that I would know the truth. And in the state of Mississippi, we'll see what the judge has to say about it. But you know I'm telling the truth. You know that last Friday night, you I met up with... I and had shirts with friends, and that's what I told you I did. That's not what your messages say. With your pictures on them. Whatever. Off of your kick account. You just deleted the account while I go on your phone. 
They argued about who would get to keep various items, and he speaks about her having an alleged affair with other couples that he didn't know about and at least one local police officer. Their alleged and rumored agreement was that neither would step out of the marriage without the knowledge or involvement of the other, but she had been doing so while he was working out of town. At least one of his friends had also seen the evidence on John's phone that led to these accusations and they had been screenshot and sent to him by their young son. John threatened to expose her to her parents and the court if she wasn't civil during their divorce proceedings. At 3.24 into the video, Cindy can be heard saying that she will do everything in her power to keep him from seeing his children. During the next three weeks, John helped her with some repairs at the home, and they were being cordial. This is until the two had an argument at the home they previously shared after John met with a divorce attorney. He then returned to his home, and meanwhile, Cindy allegedly claimed to law enforcement that he had physically and sexually assaulted her at gunpoint and that she hit him with her car. However, his explanation of events was much different. He said he was sitting on the couch, and during a conversation, she got angry and jumped on him, and he threw her off him and attempted to leave. As he was going to his truck, she got in her car and hit him with her car and then drove away. After their altercation, she marked his truck as stolen in the manufacturing system, which likely alerted the sensor in the truck while he was driving, which is not the first time she had done that in order to find out his location. Likely angry, he ditched the truck and hid it in the hayfield behind Cindy's trailer and later told his friend about it. He then asked his neighbor to pick him up from the side of the road and was dropped off at his house in the middle of the night. Cindy then allegedly over the next two days requested police escort several times to her home because according to her, she feared John. When he got wind of her accusations, he told his boss on June 2nd that he would be going to the police station to settle the accusations. That same afternoon, John was on the phone with his best friend Kevin and said that police were cruising up and down his road, Gene Road, and he was going to just flag them down and see what was going on. They were apparently watching the house for him to return in his truck, not knowing that he was already home and had ditched the truck. They even stopped and asked his neighbor if they had seen his truck. Keep in mind, this is a very small rural town where everyone knows everyone and many people are related. Turns out, records show that two officers were on his road between 12 and 4 p.m. that day. Another one was officially dispatched to his address at the same time he told Kevin that he was going to hang up and walk down the driveway to flag them down to talk or turn himself in and stated he didn't know exactly what Cindy had told police that he had done. After the call with Kevin, he would mysteriously vanish and has never been heard from again. After hanging up with Kevin and before he was officially missing, Cindy strangely made no more requests for assistance from law enforcement. Two weeks after he went missing, his truck was found abandoned in the field and turned over to Cindy. He had disabled the tracking system by removing a fuse. Those close to him believe he left the truck there with intentions of retrieving it at some point. The last ping of his phone was at his home where he was last known to be, but there have been no further pings on it and it has yet to be located. The phone allegedly contained pictures and evidence of her recent alleged affair with a police officer. 
Initially, his parents thought he was out of contact because he had maybe gone off the grid for a few days. No one was very alarmed initially, but once they thought something sinister may have happened to John, they attempted to report him missing. The Lincoln County Sheriff's Department initially refused to accept a missing persons report for John as Cindy had filed assault charges against him and they thought he was a fugitive on the run. They explained that you can't be considered a missing person and at the same time be wanted by police. Many believe that this was all strategically done to hinder and delay an investigation into possible foul play. A few months later in September, John's sister filed the missing persons report with the Lee County Sheriff's Department near where she lived in Tupelo, Mississippi. Their divorce was finalized the following January in spite of John's absence, and Cindy was granted full custody of their children. Investigators would start officially looking into his missing persons case many months after he was last seen. His loved ones don't believe he would have abandoned his children as he loved them dearly and had always had regular contact with them even during the tumultuous separation. Suspiciously, she reportedly told her son that his father was not coming back. Many people speculate that she knows more than she shared. She has obtained an attorney and has been uncooperative with the investigation. The mobile home that they had shared and his truck has since been sold and allegedly was never thoroughly searched for evidence. In February 2019, Cindy was arrested for grand larceny by the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office for selling a bobcat that was owned by John and his father not long after he went missing. She allegedly told the man she sold the bobcat to that her husband had been dead for two years and she had been grieving and just now getting around to selling it. His children, his parents, his siblings, and all those that loved him remain devastated in their loss and want justice and answers. His bank account has been untouched since June 1, 2018, the day before he was last seen. Let me know in the comments what you think happened to John. Due to a lack of reported evidence available at this time, the case remains unsolved. Henry Young was born July 5, 1900. At the age of 90, Henry resided in the sparsely populated town of Jonestown, Mississippi, in Coahoma County, where he lived and worked on the Alcorn Russell farm. He was described as the kind of man that would give you the shirt off his back. On July 23, 1990, he left home during the night, driving his dark blue 1976 Ford Maverick with a white top. Witnesses reported seeing him outside of Jonestown with an acquaintance of his who happened to be a 17-year-old girl. Sadly, Henry never returned home to the farm. When this girl was questioned a couple weeks later, she said she'd robbed Henry and beat him to death outside the Silver Saver grocery store in Tutwiler, Mississippi. She also implicated a 15-year-old boy as her accomplice that lived in Tutwiler. What was strange, though, is she claimed they did not kill Henry until August 1st, a week after his disappearance. Both teens were arrested and held for his murder. However, when police could not find his body or his car, they brought a helicopter into the search and dragged the Hobson Bayou along U.S. Highway 49. Then on August 24th, over a month after his disappearance, Henry's car was found near Friars Point, Mississippi, about 50 yards from the Mississippi River. 
The grass had grown up around and even into the vehicle, indicating it had been parked there for a long time. But there was still no sign of Henry. A few days later, police found his shoes, car keys, and britches. Surprisingly, the teens were released despite their confessions. Authorities stated that without Henry's body, there was no case against the teenage suspects, and as of June 2022, this case remains unsolved. There's not a lot of information available about this case, but I wanted to include it in this video to help get the word out. Alicia Lynn Blair Ivey was born August 18, 1995, to Furland and Rosa Ivey and lived in Quitman, Mississippi, and went by Blair. Her mother passed away when she was just two years old, and then she later lost her brother to a medical issue. Blair later graduated from Quitman High School and remained close to her father. She battled a rare lung disease that would often force her in and out of the hospital. At the age of 23, on October 28, 2018, she was last seen around 6 p.m. at a house on Long Boulevard near Bannister Avenue in her hometown of Quitman. Her cell phone was active later in the day in the southwest part of Clark County, where Quitman is located, and pinged off of the Voss Tower. This was the last time her phone pinged off a tower, and it most likely died or was turned off. Friends and family say that it is unlike her to not make contact for more than a day. Searches have been conducted of several surrounding counties and bodies of water, but no signs of her have been found. Police believe foul play is suspected, but have not released the name of the person that was last to see her alive. Her father says not knowing where his daughter is or if she's even alive has been a painful, never-ending nightmare. As of June 2022, Blair has not been located and this case remains unsolved. When Leslie Allen married Jeff Anderson in 1985, she already had three children, Greg, Stephanie, and Chris. Jeff and Leslie went on to have three more children together and he adopted Greg, Stephanie, and Chris. Rachel Murray Anderson was born May 9, 1986. Cameron Jeffrey Anderson was born March 4, 1988. And Kyle Nicholas James Anderson was born December 11, 1990, and at the time, the family lived in Racine, Wisconsin. However, the couple divorced in 1997, and Jeff moved to Indiana, while Leslie took the children to Mississippi. Chris had already moved out on his own, so Leslie took the other five children to live in Fulton, Mississippi at 757 Scenic Drive with a man named Kelly that had been living in their basement. After Leslie and Jeff divorced, Kelly told her he was moving with his family to Fulton, Mississippi, where they owned a lot of land and a marina. Leslie was unemployed and possibly desperate, so the seven of them then began living in and sharing two campers while living in deplorable conditions on a muddy hillside, which is the opposite of what they had in Wisconsin. Turns out, his family did have land, but did not own a marina, and she was likely unaware of what the conditions were going to be like. Initially, Jeff would get a call from his children every Saturday, but those calls stopped, and for a period of time, when he called to speak with them, Kelly would give an excuse as to why they couldn't talk at the time. Jeff was scheduled to have his kids with him over the summer, but Kelly told him the oldest story in the book. 
that months earlier, Leslie left in the middle of the night with a truck driver she met, taking with her the three youngest siblings, and he hadn't seen them since. Leslie allegedly left Stephanie and Greg, her oldest children, in his care and also left her brown 1981 Chevrolet Caprice station wagon, which was later found abandoned on Kelly's property. Strangely, Jeff's child support checks were still being cashed. Also, the older children, Stephanie and Greg, who stayed with Kelly, are mentally disabled and were receiving monthly disability checks. In April 2000, Jeff filed a complaint with the court that Leslie was in contempt and he didn't get his children for the summer and he didn't even know where they were. The children were then officially reported missing April 11, 2000, when Leslie missed the court date regarding visitation. A warrant for Leslie was issued and Jeff received full custody of the children once they could be located. Since then, Chris and Jeff have hired private investigators that found that Leslie hasn't used her bank account or had any jobs since her disappearance. The investigation also showed that Leslie, Cameron, Rachel, and Kyle hadn't been to any medical appointments and there have been no sightings of them anywhere since they went missing and social security numbers have not been used. Stephanie and Greg were born with special needs and to this day remain in Kelly's care and he has managed their disability checks for the past 22 years. Members of the Anderson family have driven down to Mississippi to speak to Stephanie and Greg but Kelly refuses to allow them to and because they are adults nothing has been done. He's allegedly told Stephanie and Greg that Jeff is evil and dangerous and they refer to Kelly as their uncle. However, there was one occasion in early 2001 when this photo of Jeff, Greg, and Stephanie and their grandmother Nancy Kelly was taken during a visit to the camper where Greg and Stephanie were living. Initially, they were overjoyed to see their family members, but minutes later, their behavior quickly changed when Kelly joined the family visit. Stephanie clung to him and Greg began to rock and suck his thumb. When law enforcement arrived, they explained to the siblings the family wanted them to come home to Indiana. Kelly began yelling, they will kill you if you go home with them, is that what you want? The three officers told the family they are adults and they are capable of choosing where they want to live. When in fact, they are developmentally disabled and in the care of someone who is of no relation to the family. Chris now runs a Facebook page dedicated to his missing siblings. The government has reportedly checked in with Kelly and found him to be a fit guardian. The Anderson family has tried for over 20 years to work with local law enforcement in Fulton to try to get answers. However, Itawamba County refused to file a missing persons report on Leslie, Cameron, Rachel, and Kyle, so Ohio County in Indiana has been the only agency investigating which is where Jeff lives. Chris has made at least two trips down to Mississippi to meet with the Sheriff's Department and other officials. At the last meeting, the police said that they were pretty confident they knew where Leslie was and they were planning to make contact with her and they somehow knew that she just didn't want to be found. There has been no further communication with Chris and Jeff and the calls to the Itawamba Sheriff's Office either go unanswered or straight to voicemail or whatever it takes to avoid proper communication with Chris and Jeff. It's also been revealed that Kelly allegedly received legal guardianship over adults Greg and Stephanie by simply stating that Jeff wanted him to have legal guardianship.
There has been no publicity regarding these missing children, and most people near Fulton, Mississippi, have never even heard of this case. Kelly's family owns a lot of land in Itawamba County, and there has reportedly never been a search done on the land. As of June 2022, Rachel would be 36, Cameron would be 34, and Kyle would be 31 years old, but they remain missing and this case remains unsolved. Stephanie Diane Hartwell was born August 16, 1976, and was the oldest of four siblings. At the age of 25, she was living in Columbia, Mississippi, and was a mother of four young children, including twin boys. She was described as outgoing and loved basketball. She lived in an apartment alone with her children and was in a tumultuous relationship with a man known as Catron, who had allegedly been abusive to her in the past. She also told her sister that she had plans to call it quits with him because he continued to be abusive. On November 28, 2001, soon after her children went to school, she kept receiving repeated calls from her friend Lawanda while she was on the phone with another friend. It is important to note that Lawanda is cousins with Stephanie's boyfriend, Catron, and Stephanie had recently distanced herself from Lawanda after having a fallen out. Lawanda's green four-door Saturn car with tinted windows pulled up to the apartment between 8.30 and 9 a.m. Stephanie told neighbors that she was going to the store and would be right back and left in the car in the vicinity of Harrison Jefferson Road in Columbia. She likely said she was going to the store as to not explain where she was really going because she left her purse behind and had apparently been running herself a bath. Her neighbors witnessed her getting into the green Saturn but could not be sure who was driving but it was assumed to be Lawanda because it was her car. Sadly, Stephanie would not be right back and has never been seen again. Stephanie's sister soon arrived to the apartment as planned to find Stephanie gone, but her purse and phone remained in her apartment and the bathtub half full. It appeared that she left in a hurry with intentions of quickly returning. Afterwards, Lawanda denied ever talking to Stephanie or seeing her that day. Both Lawanda and Catron have reportedly been uncooperative with police, and it doesn't appear that there has been any progress in the investigation into her disappearance and presumed homicide. Her children, now adults, have grown up not knowing where their mother went and what happened to her, and as of June 2022, this case remains unsolved. Frank Garcia was born February 2, 1959. At the age of 35, he was the father of two girls, 6-year-old Crystal and 10-year-old Stephanie. They were living in the very rural town of Houston, Mississippi, a town of only a few stoplights and where everybody knows everybody. Although he was divorced from Nancy, the mother of his daughters, he lived near her on Highway 8 in Houston. He was described as a devoted father, an all-around good person, and was known to visit his daughters often. He and his second wife, Ginger, were in the process of separating when something bad happened. On February 16, 1994, Frank mysteriously went missing. His wife, Ginger, told police two different stories about his disappearance. In one story, she said she went to get her daughter from church, and when she came back, Frank was gone. 
His wife's other story is that he left walking down the highway with two garbage bags of clothing, a box of important papers, and a 19-inch television set and never returned. I can't imagine the possibility of one carrying two garbage bags full of clothes, a television, and a box. None of the items he allegedly took with him has ever been found, and he left behind two paychecks at his workplace. It would be six days before he was actually reported missing, but not by his wife Ginger, but his sister instead, who was living in Alabama. Ten years after his disappearance, a local man confessed in writing to the murder. But after police searched the person's house for two days, he told them that he made it all up and had nothing to do with it. So police called off the search, and according to his family, nothing else has happened since. In 2008, police got a possible tip about where his body was buried, but after days of digging up levee banks, nothing was found. His daughter's DNA has since been entered into the system so that they can use it to compare against any unidentified remains that are found. His loved ones feel that his disappearance has been silenced for the past 28 years, although the investigator on the case begs to differ. Frank would be 63 years old as of June 2022, and as of today, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.